Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 2nd, with the first few days of the 2023 WTA and ATP seasons now officially in the books. Listeners, I am ready to fire off some takes on the first few days of play. Of course, Happy New Year to all of you Mini Break Podcast listeners. Hopefully, you each got to ring in the new year in whichever fashion you deem most appropriate for me. That means getting to do the thing I enjoy above all else, spending time with my family. With that said, I have spent the last 48 hours binge watching the first few days of United Cup play of the four ATP and WTA tour level events we have going on this week as well. And with that thought in mind, today's show is going to be a little bit different. Now, of course, you listeners will know I have no shame, no fear in sharing my extended thoughts on any given topic with you listeners on any given day. That's how you manage to host a daily podcast in tennis. With that said, I don't want to flush out our thoughts too deeply here on today's show because it's just five days of tour-level play. Technically, I know United Cup started in 2022, but certainly to get to see so many of the top players in the world play not only one but two-plus matches throughout the course of the first few days. I have a wave of thoughts on that first few days of play. Certainly want to talk about the United Cup format, how I think it has thrived throughout the course of these past few days. And then again, we got four tour level events to get in as well. So again, I want to throw a wave at takes at all of you listeners today. Some of them will be more flushed out as than others. Excuse me. I'm just going to say buckle your seatbelt right now. Hopefully you chose to listen to this podcast when you've got an hour straight stretch of time because I imagine I'm going to go for a little bit here, but I'll try to keep these takes as concise as possible as again, we want to have fun. We're ready for the start of this tennis season. Hopefully all of you listeners I know will be as excited as I am for tennis to get underway. That said, it is still five days of matches. In the big picture, United Cup means nothing, and none of these matches yet will have the intensity that we will see in the intensity of the Australian Open coming up in a few weeks. That said, we're a daily show. We're here to have some fun. We're here to ring in the new year. So I feel a wave of takes will be most appropriate. I'll try to divide those takes or at least order them in order of the five events we have, United Cup for tour level events, and we'll get rocking and rolling here to kick off this 2023 slate of mini break podcast. Of course, if you're still looking for preseason content, just scroll down on your mini break podcast feed. We were able to cover so many topics, have so many great guests throughout the 
course of December. Of course, if you're ready for the start of the college tennis season or want to prepare to get ready, hop on over to our Great Shot podcast feed where you'll see our preview of the teams ranked 10 through 3 in our preseason Division One men's and women's top 10 polls. We're finishing those podcasts here uh, this week on the Great Shot podcast feed. We may also have some bonus off-season pods on there this week as well as I still have a few topics in the queue that I hopefully will have time to look forward to, although I suppose a little look behind the curtain this week for what it's worth. I am fortunate, ecstatic, excited, all the X's in the best way possible adjectives as an Alex. I love that EX, of course, so excited. I know ecstatic is ECS for the record. Don't get mad at me. I'm not that foolish to start the new year's. Here's the point. It's going to be a busy week as I am on the call for my dear friends at Tennis Channel. I will be on T2 Tuesday through Friday, Sunday as well. So if that is how you like to follow your matches, I am certainly looking forward to being a part of the wonderful product that Tennis Channel puts forward. That said, tennis is back underway. And you know we're going to try and crank out daily podcasts Monday through Friday here on this show, talking all things ATP WTA Tour. Challengers covered on Mondays over the Great Shot podcast feed. And hopefully we have some cool things planned for the Cracked Interviews podcast this year. So be on the lookout for episodes to drop there as well, as well as season two of our Inside Out podcast feed. Trust me, folks, if you're not subscribed to yet, that channel yet, go subscribe. Got a very fun series coming up for all of you listeners. With that said, shout out as always to our dear friends at Tennis Point who join us here on this podcast once again in 2023 and have joined us for about five years here at Cracked Rackets now are the lifeblood of this mini break podcast. We would not be able to cover the tours day in, day out without the dear support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. And by the way, You think they support us? You should see what they do for tennis players everywhere. Anything you're looking for from an equipment standpoint, rackets, shoes, strings, clothing, you name it, they've got it. You need to do a little late holiday shopping. Sometimes you forget. It happens to the best of us. If you've got a tennis-related friend, I promise you will find everything you're looking for. Or maybe you get that gift for the real number one in your life. You get that gift for yourself. You've earned that extra piece of clothing. You slim down over the holiday season. You look great, by the way. Uh, Or maybe you're ready to get into a big workout mood as a New Year's resolution. You want to spend more time on the court. The point is, Tennis Point's got you covered. Tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point, symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's fire off some takes. And the place I want to start is with United Cup. First and foremost, let's look at Iga Sviantek. Because Iga, while And I should say more broadly, while we try our best here at Cracked Rackets to cover all aspects of the tour, and I know that's a cliche, but you guys know what's going on with Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and certainly last year, Iga Sviantek was that sort of caliber, maybe as we discussed in December, the only tier one player on the WTA tour. And look, the story throughout the year will be everyone chasing Iga and certainly any player who manages to beat her in any individual event will receive a lot of limelight. 
following that victory is there were moments when Iga looked untouchable. She was the only player in 2022 to uh, finish top 10 in both hold and break percentage, was breaking serve over 50% of the time for every event of the year until the WTA finals where she finished afterwards at 49.8% in all-time season from an all-time 21-year-old talent who's the seventh youngest player to three slam titles in WTA Tour history. Look, again, I said we're cooking with fire here on today's show. Through her first two matches of singles, and you look for Iga in her two results, 6-3-7-6 over Belinda Bedchich, 6-1-6-3 over Yulia Putenseva. Now, I think many of you listeners will know my thoughts on Bencic. I think this is a make-or-break season for Bencic as becoming an elite talent, once again being considered one of those Tier 1 players because certainly when she's striking the ball purely, when she's inside the baseline, when she's the aggressor, she can play elite front-foot tennis. Uh, Belinda Bencic pushed Iga in that match. In particular, Iga served for the match. Bencic was able to get the break back for 5-all in that second set, continue to take the ball early on the rise, try to pressure Iga's forehand with pace. That said, oh my God, does Iga just look exceptional right now? And she just seems more confident in her strength. She seems more confident in that ability with, you know, the strength in her legs, the concise nature of her backhand backswing, and even her ability to generate racket speed on that forehand side against Bencic, certainly against Putenseva. She held that baseline. She looked even more eager to get forward eager. <laughs> eager. Uh, leave it in, Westoff. Again, 2023, we're firing all the takes at you listeners now. Glad we got that one out on day one. Um, Iga Sviantek looked untouchable in those first two matches because even when she struggled and Iga was down multiple break points in her first two service games against uh, Yulia Putenseva, and then it was 3-1 Iga, and she never looked back. And if you don't have a weapon to hurt Iga, I'm sorry, you're just not beating her. And credit to Bencic, who I think has looked very good thus far as well. I Again, if you go listen to a podcast I did last week with David Kane drafting our ideal WTA rosters, uh, I picked Belinda Bencic on my 2023 team. I do think she will have a big season because she was her best last year, except for at the slams where she didn't make a second week. That said, she beat Putenseva 6-3. and three. Again, a very competitive match against a very much, in my opinion, in-form ego who... I don't think she even played her best, and yet when she needed to flex her muscles, she just continues to have that ability to break away from any players that she's facing. She starts taking that return a little bit earlier to take time away from you, or in the case of Putenseva, she just gets extraordinarily patient, and then the forehand looked like it had a little more whip. It looked like there was a little bit more sting. Again, she just seems a little stronger coming out of the break, and as Iga Svantec played, what, north of 60 matches last year? I think she played something like 72, 73. Needed a six weeks off. Got those six weeks off. Clearly took that time to regain her strength, regenerate, refo- uh, refocus, and improve some of the things that obviously she can continue to get better at forehand racket speed, protecting herself from being attacked by pace on that side will always be something you have to do at an elite level if you want any shot at beating Iga, but she looked more prepared for that, especially in the first set against Bencic. And then again, I, I there was kind of a little bit of a a further willingness to get forward earlier in the, in the point and with how much space she generates for herself, with how well she 
hits opponents off the court with the angle she generates on her backhand, the heaviness of that forehand ball as well. It gets you on, it's on your shoulder, and so all of your momentum is going backwards. Iga thus has a wide open alley to attack with, move forward behind. Again, I don't even know if this is a half-baked take. It's certainly not a hot take, but I'm firing off a take. Is she the favorite right now? Would you bet a parlay? What odds would I have to give you? Ego wins all four slams this year. Like, I think if I give you 10 to 1, you probably take it because you look for her in Australia. She's already a minus 125 favorite. They value Iga over the field. You know, again, she's a favorite against the entire field, not plus 115 odds, which is where Novak Djokovic is right now. Minus 125 odds. That's how heavy Iga is a favorite according to odds makers. My eyes do not say anything different. With that said, let's move to take number two from United Cup. And again, we're going to go quickly through a lot of these takes. One of my takes, oh my God, does Team USA look exceptional? And it starts probably with Taylor Fritz. You look for Fritz one and four over Zverev, three and four over Yuri Lechechka. Of course, Lechechka was most notable last year. He's been a guy we've talked about a lot here at Crack Rackets, but he's also a guy who made a big run at the next-gen finals last year and whose serve, whose forehand have always been weapons, but you can tell he's just a little bit more confident now playing those big weapons at the ATP Tour level. And look, he took some lumps throughout the course of last season. But the big thing was how many repetitions Lechechka got last year. How did this turn into a tangent on Lechechka? Credit to me for finding a way to do that. Truly in prime form here to start 2022. But uh, 2023, there we go. Leave it in. That said, you look for Yuri Lechechka. Again, got a ton of reps last year at the ATP Tour level. 14 and 20 overall. Looked really good. Uh, Excuse me. 13 and 19 overall, but the serve is just a weapon, and his ability to create behind that serve now, he wasn't quite confident finishing points moving forward, and Taylor Fritz made him pay for that. Fritz ultimately breaking Lehechka twice, although only generated three points break points for himself throughout the course of the match. Lehechka's got serious weapons. You know, I said it. I think he's going to be a top 50 guy for a while. I don't know He's not the most fluid uh, playing defense on the backhand wing. When you can push him back, he will leave things short, and he's not the best finisher at the net right now, but he's got serious weapons that are just going to work at the ATP level. Do I think he'll be elite of the elite? No, because the weapons aren't that big, but they are certainly top 50 caliber. They are certainly assertive. Anyways, there's your two seconds on Lechechka, or two minutes, I suppose. But you look for Team USA. I mean, oh my God, did Taylor Fritz just look exceptional in his first two victories, and he blitzed Alex Zverev off the court. I mean, Zverev right now is not moving well, and that's a take we'll get to in a little bit, but it's not that he's not moving particularly well. It's that he's leaving the forehand short, which was always an issue even when Zverev was at his best, but Taylor Fritz made him pay for every ball that landed inside the service line. Fritz was willing to change direction. Fritz has yet to be broken in either of his two matches, won 96% of his first serve points against Zverev in his one in four victory. Fritz has been outstanding. I feel bad. I feel like I was selling stock on Fritz in December because again, I just don't know how good of a mover Taylor Fritz will be. And I feel like there are enough guys who can generate elite pace consistently enough that they're going to give Fritz trouble. But you have to generate that elite uh, pace consistently because if you don't, he will make you pay. 
And I will tell you, knowing Fritz like I do, how singular, I don't want to say singularly focused he is on tennis, but how determined he is to be the best version of himself as a tennis player at some point in his career. He will maximize every ounce of athleticism in his body, and he has never had issues hitting a tennis ball. He looks like a top 10 player right now. And I'm devastating the thing that I will be most wrong about in December is that Taylor Fritz will take another step forward. And I don't feel like I anticipated that well in the month of December, despite what countless guests seem to indicate towards me. Uh, with that said, again, it's not just Fritz. Pagula, impressive victories uh, for her. Oh, impressive victory, excuse me, over Laura Siegemund. I thought she played a really good match despite losing it 6-4 and four to Petra Kvitova in round number one. Of course, if Taylor Fritz is the number one reason Team USA is winning the reason number two is Madison Keys, who hits Marie Buzkova 6-4-6-3 off the court. And I know you're saying 6-4-6-3, that's not a blowout score. That's because you can't blow out Marie Buzkova. She's just going to track down that extra ball. She's going to be that thorn in your side. And just, again, she's a lingerer. She is a pest. She is the the ultimate counterpuncher, perhaps, we have right now with Simona Halep out on the WTA Tour. And Keys was just in rhythm throughout the course of the match, attacked every second serve, was inside the baseline. Julie Nehemiah, as much as she improved, just did not have the the first step quickness and the recovery ability to keep pace with Madison Keys throughout the course of the match. I mean, again, Keys was exceptional. Tiafos looked great. Uh, obviously, the second set, Thomas Mychek, that was a tough result. But, you know, for Tiafo to win that match the way that he did, he beats Oscar Ota 5-4, and four, didn't seem to have too much trouble dealing with that Ota serve into his forehand, was able to just get the breaks when he needed him. And clearly the first serve that we saw at the U.S. Open and to end the home stretch of the season, it just feels like it's real. It feels like his ability to play on his front foot and be dominant and create generate free points for himself to go along with all the improvisational skills just feels real this is why we were so high on American tennis and last week with Ben Rothenberg when we talked about the top 10 and said all 10 guys could legitimately be not just top 50 players but top 32 players like in that mix throughout the course of the year and if you listen to the pod you know Fritz Tiafo are certainly at the top of the list team USA rocking and rolling how does this bear for Davis Cup, which if you play that a hundred times, how many times does Team USA win Davis Cup? If we just take Rajiv Ram, do we win Davis Cup? You know, Fed Cup, Pagula, Keys, Goff, Anisimova, countless options you feel like in the queue as well. We should be winning some team tennis events. And I'll tell you what, that wouldn't hurt the reputation of US uh, of tennis in the USA. So shout out to Team USA, absolutely killing it. With that said, again, here's a quicker one. How about the Cam Nori forehand? We know old Iron Lungs, he's going to make you play two and a half hours, right, to beat him. That's been the rep on Cam Nori, but there's a little more sting, a little more panache, just a little more chutzpah behind that Cam Nori forehand right now. And I mean, again, the physicality he brought in the match against Nadal, a 3-6-3-6-3-6-4 come from behind victory for Nori, a much-needed win over Rafael Nadal, who had tormented Nori on so many different occasions, so many different big stages thus far in Nori's career. He's now 1-4, you know, first win in his five attempts. Massive victory for Nori. Of course, he follows that up, maybe even more impressively, the 3-3 three and three win over Demon Hour, because Demon Hour then goes and beats Rafa's 3-6-6-1-7-5, and that brings me to my next take. Again, I thought the sting for Nori was exceptional. I thought that Alex Diemenauer first serve looked unbelievably uh, against Rafa in his second match. And you look for Demon 
fought off eight of twelve first sir uh, eight of twelve break points. I know he was broken four times, but it was just he was able to generate free points for himself in the biggest moment with that first serve. And that's just not something he's been able to do early in his career. And does he generate as many free points as the guys in the, who are the top 10 servers on the ATP Tour? No, he'll never be a Kyrgios, a Hercats even, or a, honestly a Stefano Tsitsipas. You know, that's not the track for Demon Hour. But if he can just be a top 25 server, along with the fact that he was a top 10 returner in 2022, that's an elite player. That's the modern-day David Ferrer, right? That's the sort of guy who just lingers in the top 10 because if you don't have a significant weapon, you're just not going to be able to hang it with him physically. And, you know, again, that brings me to my next quick take here as we're firing through. I know I didn't spend that much time on the Nori match, didn't get into the break points, didn't get into any specific turning points. But I do think two things. One, and this relates to the Rafa retirement comment every press conference now. He says it feels like everyone asks him about retirement, which, by the way, of course they do. You're, it's, you've been a pro for 20-plus years now, like or not 20-plus years, but you get the conversation. We're nearing two decades of Rafa. I, you get the line of questioning. Of course, I also completely understand and empathize, sympathize, and agree with Rafa. Like Every loss needs to be taken individually. They're not just, oh, no, he lost two matches. Now he must be considering retiring because Rafa never loses, and because he started to lose, he must thus be thinking about retirement. No, that's... Uh, that's a false choice. It's a straw man argument. All these different things, all the different adjectives apply. Two things, though. Clearly, the book is out. Keep this Rafa on the move. Keep this Rafa moving side to side. And I actually think the glass half full perspective is Rafa is that he played pretty freaking good defense against both Nori and Demon Hour. When he's able to dip that first passing shot low at your feet, his ability to A, do that and just force you to pop up that first volley, and B, his continued ability to track down that second passing shot and always put that ball away. He probably puts that ball away 97% of the time. I would say he and Djokovic are without question the best two passing shot combination players in professional tennis history. Rafa did that pretty well against Demon, certainly in the first set. He did it really well against Nori in the second set. The biggest concern would be that physically, and it's only two out of three sets, and it's the first five days of the year, and Rafa won the Australian Open last year. He's always been a guy, particularly in this stage of his career, who needs these matches to play his way into shape, always does that. Not play his way into shape, but play his way into form. He always has seemed to have done that of late last year in the first weeks of slams. He's still going to have the opportunity to do that. The thing I would take away from his matches is I think there are just guys who are going to be able to match that physicality now. Like maybe Nori and Demon Hour are two of the 10 fittest players you probably find on the ATP tour. And for three hours or three sets, excuse me, they were able to match the physicality of Rafa. Now, again, two out of three is not three out of five. But Nori and Demon Hour are a lot closer, and in both cases, really in the smack dab of their physical primes. Demon turns 24 later this year. Nori turns 28 later this year. That's not the case for Rafa, who turns, what, 37 later this year? Something like that. Eventually, father time always wins. Eventually, the younger generation catches up to the older generation. And again, it's not even that Rafa slipped. It's that Nori and Demon just continue to look like absolute physical monsters. And so, again, has the Rafa retirement tour begun? Absolutely not. Has the field slowly begun to catch up to Rafa? Is that a fresh message? That's not a hot take. We saw that 
I mean, maybe it is hot take because he won the first two slams of last year. And again, we're not on clay. So it's a different discussion come Roland Garros. But certainly uh, that was a concept that approached my mind, that there would be a plane of physicality. Rafa used to reach that only Novak and prime Murray. And obviously Federer could hit his way through it. Those were the only guys who could hang. And it's just like if you expect to see that Rafa every time in two out of three cent matches, you're just asking yourself to be fooled. And so, again, the Rafa retirement tour has not begun. It's that Demon Hour, Nori, closer and closer to their primes. That in mind, speaking of primes, is the lost generation just officially lost? And obviously, I think someone said Raonic turns like 32 this year, which is terrifying Something absolutely strange to say out loud. Yeah, Milos Raonic right now, 32 years old, born in 1990. Look, I watched Dimitrov's matches. I actually think Dimitrov played pretty well uh, in both of his matches. Now, he ultimately lost that match in three sets at United Cup uh, to, I believe, uh, Stefan Tsitsipas in match number one. He then bounces back, straight set win over David Goffin in round number two. Tsitsipas, a straight set win over David Goffin as well. Dimitrov looked good. Like, again, is able to, when he has his, he finds forehands extraordinarily well, slices the backhand as well as anyone, is able to use his athleticism when he's on the stretch to come up with magic from time to time. But, like, I don't think his, and maybe his peak was never, obviously, I mean, he's never won a Grand Slam in his career. He has won a World Tour Finals. So some of this is a straw man argument. But it's just clear, like, Tsitsipas is for as good as the Grigor serve forehand combination is, Tsitsipas is better. You know, again, for a guy like David Goffin, whose physicality, he was a poor man's David Ferrer from 2016 to 2019. He's just not that guy anymore. And because he can't generate the easy plus one points, like, he was having trouble getting the ball by Grigor Dimitrov. Grigor's an exceptional mover, but there are a lot of guys who move as well as Grigor right now, and you just have to have some weapons on pl- on hand to end points easily. Now, again, I think David Goffin is still a litmus test player. I think from 2016 to 2019, the litmus test was, do you want to be a top 15 guy? You better be able to beat David Goffin because if you can't do something elite to get the ball by him, the rest of these guys are a nightmare as well. I think he's now a top 50 litmus test player where you, again, you got to have some sort of weapon. I would love to watch Lachetchka play David Goffin at some point of this United Cup to see if that weapon is enough, if he can execute it at an elite enough rate to knock off top 50 guys consistently. And again, David Goffin is the model of the top 50 guy in this equation. Um, look, I, I, Nishikori, hopefully we see him healthy playing again. Marin Cilic is a one seed, I believe, in India this week, so we'll see him. He's kind of a part of that generation as well. Obviously, the guy who had the most success as he won a U.S. Open title. But this is something we talked about in December. I think the lost generation is lost. I mean, we're ready to talk Runa, Alcaraz, Sinner, Jerry Shang. Sorry, couldn't help myself. All those guys, and, you know, certainly they're still the original next-gen crew. Tsitsipas, Virev and Medvedev all the way through, I think the lost generation might be lost. And obviously Djokovic, Nadal, Federer take a lot of credit for that. Credit is, I guess, the positive spin because they were so good for so long. But uh, again, that would be a takeaway I suppose I have uh, certainly from the first few days of this. We're firing. That might be, I mean, again, that's not even a hot take. It's been the consistent take, but one of my takeaways from the first few days. Uh, Again, 
I want to mix things up. I want to talk about a couple of different things. So we'll get to the Zverev topic. I know that's something that I'm sure some people are certainly thinking about from the first few days. I do want to say on the WTA side, as it relates to this United Cup, there are a lot of trends that we saw to end 2022 that have continued early on, at least in United Cup. For instance, yes, Buzkova lost uh, her match to Pagula, but you look for Marie Buzkova, 2-5 win over Jula Niemeyer, got a win over the number 2 for uh for Kazakhstan as well. She just will be that counterpuncher. Physically, she's on another plane. And the big thing is she is such a good volleyer. Like, people don't talk enough about Marie Buskova's ability to volley. They really don't. And obviously, she's had a ton of success on the doubles court as well. But just her first step is so explosive She's able to reach that extra volley, and when she reaches that extra volley, she puts it back in place. She forces you to hit another tough draw, another tough passing shot. It's she does all of that on top of the fact that she's going to make six extra shots per rally, and that she's going to sneak a ball by the uh, down the line by you, particularly on that backhand wing if you get a little bit stagnant. I'm still holding stock firm. Like I think Buzkova ends this year inside the top 40 as she starts it. And, you know, again, with someone in the era of everyone having weapons, her weapons may not be as pronounced, but that discipline, that death by a thousand paper cuts, it's exceptional. I thought Harriet Dart was really, really good, despite the fact that she ultimately lost that three-set match to Paula Bedosa, 6-7-7-6-6-1. How many times did we say at the end of last year? Her serve, her forehand, their weapons. And... She looked really good in her 4-4 four four win over Madison Inglis. Again, if you don't have an ability to hit her off the spot, I think that's when you're going to struggle. you got to get her on the move. You can't let her sit on that forehand because she can be so effective moving that ball around the court. And credit to Paula Bedosa, who looked every bit of a tennis chameleon in the first set against uh, against Harriet Dart. And just kind of, you know, played at the pace of Dart, allowed Dart to do her thing, wasn't taking the ball particularly early or changing direction with much uh, haste. And then she did in set number two. And then she picked up her uh, just willingness to end things on an unforced air. Obviously, physically, she separates herself in set number three. But I was really impressed by Paula Bedosa's ability to come back in that match. You look for Bedosa, who not only wins there, but uh, certainly, you know, again, uh, just to see the energy her and Rafa bring, it makes this event so exciting. You know, again, on the women's side, I talked about Keys being the number one standout. I mean, Haddad Maya has been pretty solid too, but she hasn't had the toughest schedule. She's been crushing who she's supposed to crush. Caroline Garcia and Donna Vekic were two names I wanted to mention as well, talking about players who ended 2022 strong. Vekic with the San Diego title. I don't know if you heard, but Garcia uh, won Cincinnati. And, oh, yeah, she won the WTA Tour Finals as well. I think they've all played really, really well. I think Maria Sakari has played really well in her wins over Tomova and Mertens. Not really well, but well enough. She just looks confident again, and even through some mistakes, is swinging through them and continuing to be aggressive, which is exactly what Maria Sakari needs because obviously there were crises of confidence throughout the course of her 2022. Again, Sakari ended the year strong, though, with her run in Guadalama- uh, Guadalajara excuse me, and her ability uh, to just make a run at the to the WTA Tour Finals. I think a lot of trends we saw to end 2022, this is a testament to that short offseason. They've carried over specifically on the WTA side to start 2023. So again, I apologize for the lack of length on that WTA breakdown, but those are my thoughts on all things United Cup uh, on, the, on the women's side. Two more men's and one last big picture uh, United Cup take. 
yeah, Matteo Berrettini was great in his victory today. Berrettini obviously impressive in that win over Casper Ruud, 6-4, 6-4. But nothing's new. Like when he's healthy, this is who Berrettini is. A top 10 guy, a top five server, a man who's, when he gets a look at a neutral forehand, you're now playing on his terms. He can serve and volley. He can move forward behind that first forehand. The backhand will never be elite, but he continues to improve a percent here, a percent there. He's effective in hitting the slice, and he can dominate with his first serve, first forehand, no matter who you are. Again, it's the polished-up version of Nick Kyrgios. Like, that's what Matteo Berrettini is. It's everything you—I mean, now the difference is Kyrgios has the backhand, so the highest version, the best version of uh, Kyrgios, probably the more complete player, but who is more efficient, point in, point out, who's— Effort level is the most consistent match in, match out, maybe on the ATP tour. Matteo Berrettini, like you just know exactly what you're going to get. And so, yes, he beats Casper Ruud. That's a big win considering Ruud made two slam finals last season. Matteo Berrettini did not. But this is who Matteo Berrettini is. Like He is this caliber of player to me. He epitomizes tier two where you just know he is always going to be in the hunt. You have to play your best tennis if you want to knock off Matteo Berrettini. And so good to see him healthy. Hopefully he stays that way. Quickly on Zverev, he's struggling out of corners. Obviously the serve was a massive issue for him against Fritz. That's always been a thing. But the forehand is sitting short. And he's doing that thing you do when you're not confident in your movement in that he's playing two or three feet even further behind the baseline than we're accustomed to. And that's because he feels the need to buy himself time. And obviously, you seed positioning when you do that. And Zverev has paid the price because he's leaving the forehand short anyways. Still two weeks, a lot of matches to be played perhaps for Zverev before the start of the Australian Open. Not a lot, but time to work in the lab we know what he can be at his best. He is not that right now. With that said, final thought on United Cup, and I know there's been a lot more tennis that I didn't comment on, but folks, again, I don't want this podcast to be four hours to start because I got to call matches for T2 tomorrow. That said, more team tennis. Like, it's a serious conversation. We have had, of course, before here at Cracked Rackets, that's part of our affection for college tennis as well, is that it is unabashedly team tennis. But team tennis just brings out the best in these players. It does. They seem more relaxed. They seem to enjoy themselves more. There's an added intensity. It helps that the crowds have continued to be exceptional. But a serious conversation needs to be had about should we end the individual season by the end of September, maybe move things up through the end of October, and then the last two months, you don't have to play. Excuse me. Let's try that again. You don't have to play. Leave it in. I apologize if that was gross. Um, But... Present this as an option to tennis fans. Let us get creative with trades between teams, with free agency, enticing players to come to your event XYZ because there's just something to team tennis. And of course, it's always great to play for your country, but every time in this format, team tennis seems to be excited and we just haven't cracked the code on how to perfectly ingratiate team tennis into the broader professional tennis ecosystem and really make it a a part of our lives that I think it should be. And I think United Cup is a testament to that. And again, has to give a shout out. It has to be given to the Australian crowds who have made these events, the energy level, the players energy level that much more special. So I'm a fan of United Cup, whether it be on the court, whether it be off the court, everything we've seen has been extraordinarily exciting. We've also got four tour-level events this week, and let's start with the play in Adelaide. I want to start on the WTA side. Holy shit. 
is this an exceptional draw for us to begin the 2023 calendar with? I mean, you just look at the results we see uh, even unfolding thus far in Adelaide, but just the seeds we have in play. Own Jabur, your number one seed, top 10 player. Arena Sabalenka, your number two seed, top 10 player. Daria Kasatkina, who, yes, has been eliminated. We'll get there, I promise. Top 10 player, three seed. Kudermatova, again, ATP Tour Finals caliber player last year. ATP WTA, excuse me. She's the four seed. You had her versus Anisimova, round one. You had two of the bro- sneaky, consistent, into the top 25 players for the first time in their career last year. Jung Shui versus Samsonova, round number one. Alexandrova Vandrusova, round number one. Again, Andrescu Muguruza, round number one. Ostapenko Pliskova, round number one. Rabakina Collins, round number one. It's January 2nd, and we've already had Annette Conteve play Jung Chin Wen, the last matchup I had yet to match uh, mention. I mean, I know all month of December, yes, there's only one definitive Tier 1 talent right now on the WTA Tour. It is Iga Sviantek, and others have to prove it. I believe there are other Tier 1 talents who I will project moving forward will have similar results, but I understand why in 2022 the only Tier 1 player was, I shouldn't say Tier 1 talents, but the only Tier 1 player right now is Iga Sviantek. But you know what's really fun? Seeing the rest of the pack sort things out, and we get to see everyone sort things out right off the bat here, right to kick things off. No chaser, straight shots here in Adelaide. And I mean, again, does it get better than that as a tennis fan? No, we get right into things here to start the 2023 season. I can certainly think of worse ways to kick things off. That said, I don't want to start with any of the big names. I want to start with Linda Naskova. Oh my goodness, can the young Czech strike the ball? Is Linda Naskova better Clara Tawson? Some scholars are asking the question, and I think it's a legitimate one to ask. Of course, Naskova is a former top junior in the world. For those of you who don't know about her tennis, Linda Naskova, of course, currently ranked, I believe, number 87, or excuse me, number 91 in the WTA rankings, 18 years old. You know, she was a former top junior in the world, won the 2021 Junior uh, French Open title and reached a career high of number five in the ITF junior rankings. We saw Naskova at the end of last season have some success at the WTA level. She won her first 100K. She made the semifinals, uh, became the youngest woman, uh, I believe, uh, into the top 100 uh, since Coco Goff, or, and, you know, became the youngest Czech woman to reach a tour-level semifinal, which she did, of course, in Prague. The weapons are just sensational, and her ability to swing through the backhand side is why she ultimately earned her first top 10 victory of her career in knocking off number eight, uh, excuse me, number three seed, four seed, who did she knock off? The number four seed in a three seed in Daria Kasakina uh, with her impressive 6-3-6-7-6-3 win, and I'll tell you what, after Noskova lost the second set tiebreaker 7-2, it looked like she had run out of gas. She did not. And that's why I say, honestly, a better Clara Tawson because both of them elite backhands, both of them elite firepower. I think Naskova is a little more fluid as a mover. Now, I was thinking about creating a new club, the Carolina Pliskova Club, players who are so exceptional when their feet are set and can just hit through the ball so cleanly, but maybe struggle a little bit more when they're forced to play on the move. And by the way, you can say that about just about every player. I just think Carolina Pliskova happens to epitomize that. I, that identity maybe more than any other player 
of my generation uh, of the WTA, or at least in my era of the WTA. But that said, oh my God, when Neskova has the ability to swing through a backhand on any ball, when she swings through that forehand, I thought she did a really good job of dealing with the angles and the elevation and the slices and the drop shots of Kasatkina as well. It just didn't phase her in set number three of this match. And when you look for Linda Neskova, who comes through qualifying 7-6 in the third over Kalinskaya. She gets a 3-2 win over Anastasia Potapova, a top 50 player in round number two of qualies, and then follows that up with another three-setter, a three-set win over Daria Kasakina, where every second serve she got a look at, she just absolutely punished, uh, punished, excuse me, and obviously pummeled, punished is punished when you put them together. But look, Kasakina struggled on serve. Of course, last year she finished 49th amongst top 50 players. Um, that said, those struggles remained, and I, I just worry for Kasaki. And again, her game is so predicated on physicality. There are a lot of players who just can make life easier for themselves. And, you know, again, Neskova's ability to deal with the nonsense, the the garbage, and I say that affectionately with the slices and the angles, Kasaki threw at her. Neskova just hit through them. I am all in on Linda Neskova, who obviously into the round of 16 with her victory. Neskova now going to take on the winner of Claire Lou and Priscilla Hahn. And look, I mean, the fact that in that section of the draw, we could have a Naskova versus Jung Chin Wen quarterfinal match. And like that might be the high, like that's not the guaranteed best quarterfinal of the tournament uh, of the draw speaks to again, how loaded Adelaide one is, but Look, for Jung Chin Wen, she was just so explosive in her victory over Annette Contave. The ball just jumps off of Jung Chin Wen's racket. And, you know, again, in the match, 6-1-4-6-7-6-9-7 in the third. She fights off a match point. It just took so much effort for Annette Contave to hold the baseline. And credit to Contave, who did exactly that. Got more aggressive in set number two. Said, I'm not playing at your speed anymore. Because set one, she was far more reactive than proactive in trying to be the aggressor. And Junction Wen just hits too big of a ball. She makes you pay. She moves sneaky well for someone with that much explosion. When she lands the first serve, it's just an unequivocal success behind that first strike. Look, this was really high-level tennis, and Conteve raised her level. She played top 15 ball throughout the courses of set two and three, but so did Junction Wen, who just, again, has non-negotiable weapons. And so talking about consistent things from 2022, Junction Wen looked great. In typical 2022 fashion, BB Andrescu plays a three-set match. Love 6 7 6, six one over Garbin Muguruza. Yeah, I don't have extended thoughts on that. Just, it's... BBB and BB, and unfortunately, the trend continues for Muguruza. Last one would be Elena Rabakina. I mean, Elena Rabakina, mm, just the adjustment she made, 5-7-6-2-6-3 over Danielle Collins. It was how consistently she was putting her returns of serve in play in sets two and three, and I think that was the big adjustment that she ultimately ended up making. It was just the fact that she started giving herself more margin towards the sidelines in her return, started holding her ground a little bit more and just trying to take that return particularly. I mean, she punished every second serve that she saw of Danielle Collins. Collins ultimately for the match won just 47.8% of her second serve points, but faced 17 break points throughout the course of the match. And again, was just under a constant barrage of on the rise returns down the line that were very overwhelmingly hit by Elena Rabakina and uh, it's just the combination of transcendent power. She wins 
6% excuse me of her first serve points hits over 10 aces you know mate despite making just 57% of her first serves was 2 of 4 in facing break points and generated 17 for herself yeah that's a winning ratio listeners and so Again, we were very high on Rabakina. We talked about her as a tier one potential, as a tier one talent, certainly, and one of the potential disruptors to this seeming reign of ego we're in the midst of. And nothing I saw through that first match. Again, some sizzly takes here to start things off, but nothing to see that I saw in match number one would suggest anything else. With that said, again, it's still early. Shout out to Kudermatova, massive win over Amanda Nisimova, three and zero. And again, Kudermatova is one of those players. How real was last year? We will find out uh, throughout the course of this season, as she will just have tons of points to defend. So many different quarterfinals, right? Throughout the course of the year, it'll be fascinating to see uh, where she goes from here. With that said, last stupid thought: Marta Kostyuk. Back in the mix, she wins two solid matches in uh, qualifying, win over straight sets over Buxa, win in straight sets over Meyer Sharif. Solid wins for Marta Kostyuk, who follows it up with a three-set win in round number one. Now she gets the fun test as she will take on Elena Rabakina. You know we still have stock in Marta Kostyuk here on this show. With that said, that's your look at Adelaide 1, or at least the hot takes I have to offer you. On the men's side, look, Novak's really good. Not a revelation to any of us tennis fans. And he was rock solid. 3-2 and two win over Constant Lestien. Lestien did not have a weapon to hurt him with. The slices were cute. They were ultimately not effective. Now, hot take. Who's more annoying to face as a player? Max Cressy, who's going to serve and volley you to death. And, you know, again nearly succeeded in a, his matchup against Tanasi Kokonakis. Now, he's going to lose a ton of points as he was a finalist last year uh, in an Australian warm-up event to Rafa. Or, or he's got those points to defend here this month and certainly the points to defend from the actual Australian Open itself. But, um, you know, again, that serving volley, you just get no rhythm. Points are so short, you feel like this is not real tennis versus the slicing, the lobs, the death-by-a-thousand-paper-cuts nature of uh, constant Lestien. I put out a podcast poll here to all of you listeners. Who would be more annoying to face in your mind? Tweet at Crack Rackets at AL Gruskin with your answer, whether it's Cressy or Lestien. Uh, with that said, again, rapid fire hot takes. Djokovic, very good. Jack Draper, very good as well. And Draper should earn a straight set win over Sun Wukwan, but to do a two and one, to look as dominant as he did behind the first serve, his willingness to move forward, he looks a little stronger as well already early this season. I mean, just exceptional for Jack Draper. The other message I would send to FAA and Holgaruna fans, relax. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. Just relax. Certainly channel that inner Aaron Rodgers because it's a first round of a first event of the 2023 season. And look, Alexi Popperin playing in front of a home crowd. He's on home soil. He gets to makes that offseason that much easier of a transition. His forehand, his serve combination, they've always had elite power. He hit them exceptionally well against Felix. Yeah, Felix lost the match four and six. His backhand got overwhelmed at times. He tried hitting the slice more frequently in set number two, and he was hitting it effectively. And it threw off uh, it threw off Popperin's rhythm for a bit. He just stuck with it a little too long. But like Popperin played a really good match, and he was able to play two matches in qualifying. And by the way, 
Popperin, two wins over two goats because not only does he beat Felix, he beat Ebing Wu, 6-4-3-6-7-5. Folks, all I'm saying, transitive property here. Popperin beats Felix. Ebing Wu loses 7-5 in the third to Popper, and Ebing Wu is a top 10 player. That's just math, folks. And by the way, Sun Wu Kwan, really nice win over Team 4-1 in qualifying as well. Uh, shout out to our guy, Rinki Hijikata, who, of course, friend of the program, has come on the Cracked Interviews podcast in the last two months. Uh, he qualifies into this event as well, and uh, he's going to have an interesting, certainly, matchup on his hands uh, as he is going to take on, I believe, Denis Shapovalov in round number one. That said, some final thoughts. If you listen to our Americans podcast, you know I thought neither Mackie McDonald nor Marcos Garon was going to end the year as a top 10 American man. Both of them earned first round victories in Adelaide. Shout out to two former NCAA singles champions and UCLA Bruins. Shout out to Daniil Medvedev, Karen Hatchinov, two impressive victories in their first matches of the season. Two guys obviously looking to have massive 2023s as again, both 1996s, both turned 27 this year. That's the prime of your career. This is the window for each of those guys. Hatchinov looking to rally off of that 2022 U.S. Open semifinal. Obviously looking for his first title since that Paris Masters title back in, what, 2018. Medvedev has always had success over the course of the past few years in Australia. Doesn't want this year to be any different. And then the final take from the first round of action in Adelaide. We have a My House Alert. Our first of the year. Now, I think Tanasi Kokonakis has earned the right to call Adelaide his house. He is from Australia, and certainly you look for Kokonakis, who has dealt with so many issues throughout the course of this uh, his career, to put together a pretty consistent top 100 season last year. 35 total ATP Tour level main draw matches. He obviously made the final and won the title in Adelaide last year, beating Rinder Kanesh in Adelaide 2. It's a my house alert because everyone now calls everywhere their house when they're having success. But maybe this is well-deserved for Tanasi Kokonakis, who gets off to the start. He is certainly looking for here in 2022. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. That said, that's your look at Adelaide 2. Let's move on now to Auckland, home of our second WTA tour-level event. It's the lesser of the two draws. It does not mean by any means it is insufficient. And certainly top seed Coco Goff, a WTA Tour finalist last year. You've got a lot of Americans in the draw here. And look, it's been a tough start for the Americans in Auckland, if we're being honest. Now, again, it's one day of results, but tough start for Madison Brangle. Three-set loss to Julin. Tough loss for Bernarda Pera, who obviously was so hot through the second third of last season, but a 4-4 four four loss for her to Victoria Kuzmova. Katie McNally, tough three-set loss to Bonaventure and Lee. First-round loss in qualies to Eugene Bouchard, Coco Vandeweghe, Katrina Scott, Caroline Dullahide, Elizabeth Mandlick. Again, a lot of Americans uh, struggled in qualifying through the first round of this play in Auckland, except for Venus, who earns a 6-2 and two win over a fellow American in Katie Volleynets, but Look, it's the perfect matchup for Venus Williams. And, you know, the, the thing you request more than anything as you age on a tennis court is time. 
And with all due respect to Katie Valinets, that's what she provided Venus because Valinets is a counterpuncher through and through. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Same coach for her as Jensen Brooksby. You see it very prominently in how each of them hit their backhands. But Valinets was counterpunching, and she did a good job of moving Venus from side to side. That said, she couldn't generate enough easy pace to put serious pressure on Venus throughout the course of the match. And Venus had her on the run. You know, when Venus has time to turn into the tennis ball, she tur- still turns into it extraordinarily well. She's always been so comfortable moving forward. It was a great game plan for her against Katie Valinets. And so Venus, as the wild card, advances into round number two, where honestly about as advantageous of a matchup as she could hope for in Julin. I thought it was a really nice win from Julia Grabert, uh, who I thought was really good down the home stretch of last season. She's just, it doesn't have the overwhelming weapons, but it's a fun watch. She got a good win over Teresa Martinsova, stretching her to the outer thirds, did Grabert, uh, ultimately in her uh, three-set win in round number one. Tough result for Brenda Fruvertova, but I think it's more about what Layla Fernandez did to just attack Fruvertova's serve over and over again. Layla, a one-in-one win in her victory over Fruvertova. Layla's trying to get back into the top 15. Layla's trying to assert herself as one of the tier one talents moving forward. Certainly, she made a Grand Slam final, and it felt like she was ascending there come the end of 2022. So many health issues slowed her down. uh, End of 2021, health issues slowed her down last year, and yet she still quietly made that French Open quarterfinals last year. One in one win is exactly the start you're looking for if if you, like me, are still very much a fan of Fernandez's game moving forward and thinks she will just have a place in the WTA ecosystem over the course of the next decade. I suppose the last question we ask ourselves as we look at this draw, is there an Australian Open Dark Horse candidate in its midst? Now, you feel like Fernandez, if she can continue this level, she would qualify uh, obviously, Coco Goff's not a dark horse. She's just straight up a contender, given she was top eight player last year, has reached a Grand Slam final before. Radakanu, a slam champion. Who's the last American to win a slam, by the way? Sonia Kennan, who kicks off her campaign against Wang, Shi, uh, Wang Shin Yu. Sloan, Radakanu, Kennan would be the big dark horse candidates. You want to see how they are performing. And Fernandez, of course, throughout the course of this event. Rebecca Marino is someone who can just make life miserable for you with her weapons. A third round run, not out of the question there as well. But I think Adelaide won just, again, the strength of that draw. United Cup action still going on. Auckland will slip into the background, but still make sure you're keeping an eye on the results as they unfold as well. And look, if Auckland's going to fold into the background, and we'll talk about tennis abstract singles forecast stuff. We'll do more of that tomorrow as we get a little bit more formal. I just had a wave of takes I had to offer here as there has been so much tennis. Ah! Last but certainly not least is the ATP event in Punai. Look, the biggest takeaway I have here is Michael Moe's a top 100 guy. I said it. I think he's going to be a top 10 American to end the 2023 season. There's just a degree of physicality he brings. He just tracks down everything. And you look for Mo, two and four win. And he was, you know, overmatched his wildcard opponent, no doubt, in round number one. But you look for Mo last year, went 38 and 19 in challenger level matches, made four challenger finals, including three from September onwards, and, you know, won two challenger titles last year as well. 113 in the rankings entering the week. You look for Michael Mo right now with his uh with by winning, excuse me, this first round match. Michael Mo jumps all the way up to 108. He is currently 30 points outside of a top 100 position. One more win. He's within five points of Radu Elbot, who's also in action this week in India for what it's worth. But 
I think he's getting to the top 100 once again. We've seen him make a quarterfinal in Australia before. I believe it was back in 2018. I, he's going to eclipse his career high of number 96, in my opinion, very, very early in this 2023 season. Outside of that, again, you look at the draw. Top seed Marin Cilic, yes, to kick off play. He'll start his season against Roberto Carbeas, Baina, Botic Vandesen, Schkulp, while they take on Kabali or Mark, friend of the show, Makun Sesakumar. Um, wild card versus the qualifier there in round number one. You did have some seeds up, knocked off. Greek Spore over Munar on a hard court. Not the biggest upset, but after struggling to end last year, good to see Greek Sports start the year in good form. Lazo Jura went over Alex Mulcan. Mulchen, excuse me, still unable to find his hardcourt form, but that was always going to be a weird match. The question here again, is there an Australian uh, Open Dark Horse competing at this week's event? I think Emil Rusevori, he's not going to win the event, but his first round match against FA was quietly one of the best matches of the first day uh, of the first round at last year's Australian Open. His hardcore success over the end of last season, getting into the top 50, the weapons he brings. Guy always seems to come back fitter and faster every offseason. He's a dark horse. I guess Chilich's. Um, Botic, I don't know. I can't see Botic getting really past a fourth round in Australia. I just think the field, again, he's a nightmare to play. I just think there are too many guys with too much weaponry uh, to disrupt his rhythm. Karatsev's made an Australian Open semifinal. Maybe he writes the ship in 2023. Timmy Van Reithoven, when he's rolling, is he this year's Cressy who big serves his way into an Australian Open fourth round and an obscure ATP final to start the season? Wouldn't be as obscure, I suppose, given he's done it before, but. Maybe. I mean, again, that would be the short list of players. Certainly, again, keep your eye on Punayas. There's plenty of fun action across the board. But with that said, those are my assortment of takes from the first few days of tour-level action. Of course, with the season now underway, once again, we will be back to get into each and every day's action here on the Mini Break Podcast feed. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout-out, as well, to our friends at TennisPointTennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic... Fantastic, Daniel Westoff, our super producer, our the fantastic friends at Tennis Point, and all of us here, both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say? That's the break. And we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>